This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. Celebrating the 100th anniversary of UC Berkeley Psychology. Thank you for giving up your time to join us uh, for this part of the series. We will be running a continuing slate of events over the course of the year, and hopefully conditions allowing, uh, have a culminating celebratory event at the newish home of Berkeley Psychology at Berkeley Way West. We are very honored tonight to have a presentation from Professor Jack Gallant, and to help us set the stage, We are very fortunate to have a senior faculty member of UC Berkeley Psychology joining us to introduce our speaker. A few housekeeping notes before we jump into it. We suggest speaker view, and when our program starts, we will uh, pin our speaker to the screen for ease of viewing. If questions occur to you throughout the presentation or when we when we get to the Q&A portion, uh, please feel free to drop those in the chat. Uh, thank you to everyone who submitted questions in advance. Um, uh, Professor Gallant has reviewed and he will be addressing some of those at the end of the presentation. Uh, as we uh, get ready to begin, I would be remiss if I did not thank and recognize one of our attendees. Uh, we are... Um, having one of the most successful years ever in fundraising and development in the social sciences and UC Berkeley psychology. And we owe a great deal uh, to the leader of the department who started this effort when I joined six years ago, helped us to build this strong foundation and makes possible so much for our future. So Professor Ann Kring, we see you there. Thank you for joining us and thank you for all that you've done for UC Berkeley psychology. So with that note, uh, I'm very honored to um, introduce Professor Frederick Tunison. Uh, my colleague uh, Anya will be sharing a link to his lab um, at UC Berkeley if you'd like to check that out. Uh, Professor Tunison is part of our Behavioral and Systems Neuroscience Group. Uh, he also is connected with our Cognition and Developmental Psychology Group, and he runs the Auditory Science Lab at UC Berkeley. Professor Tunison, thank you for being with us, and the stage is yours to introduce Professor Gallant. Thank you. So um, it is really with, with great pleasure that I introduce uh, my colleague, collaborator, and friend, Professor Jack Gallant. And uh, when Jack sent me his 50-page um, CV, I realized that um, the most difficult aspect of introducing him was to keep this introduction uh, short and to the point. So I'll, I'll try to do this. So Professor Gallant is currently uh, the Chancellor's Professor and Class of 1940 Chair in Psychology. Uh, he's also a professor in electrical engineering and computer science, and he's a member of many graduate programs on campus, um, including bioengineering, biophysics, neuroscience, vision science, um, as well as the co-director of our Brain Imaging Center. Um, you can see that his participation in, in all of these different graduate programs reflects kind of the interdisciplinary approach that, um, that he has taken in his work. Uh, Professor Gallon obtained his PhD from uh, Yale University in 1988 and did his postdoctoral uh, work at the California Institute of Technology and at Washington University in St. Louis with uh, Professor uh, David Van Essen. He joined our faculty uh, in 1983. 
uh, early in his scientific career in what um, I will call kind of his analysis phase, uh, Professor Gallant performed seminal work to understand how the visual cortex analyzes image to extract the features that allows us to recognize objects. And he distinguished himself from other visual scientists at that time by studying uh, this neural processing uh, in what we call natural scenes. Natural scenes are the scenes that you and I and animals uh, see all the time in our complex worlds. And, and this was novel because at the time people were studying the visual system with things like visual gratings, moving bars, and random dot patterns, things very far from the things that we need to process to extract meaning uh, from the world, from the word. And um, this, this, you know, his, his new approach kind of, you know, led, led to some seminal findings in, in, uh, in the visual processing that I won't have time to go into detail. Um, and this, this work was already extremely difficult and challenging, both in terms of the techniques, trying to deal with the complexity of, of real-world images. And when uh, brain uh, imaging techniques became available, in particular, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, became available, um, I was surprised that Jack decided to go from something that was already, in my eyes, extremely complex to something that was even more complex, which is study how um, we extract meaning or where meaning is represented in the brain of humans. Um, and this seemed completely impossible task and Jack managed to do it. it and it's just, um, it's really quite phenomenal and amazing. Um, and he did this not only by further advancing the, the methodology itself. So the brain imaging techniques itself, um, but also, and probably more importantly by um, further developing uh, the analytical method that allows us to analyze the data and to be able to interpret these signals, these very weak signals that we get from these non-invasive techniques to be able to uh, understand what the human brain is doing and how it ex extracts uh, meaning from, from the word. And meaning sounds, sounds flaky, but it's not flaky at all. It's the meaning of words that you hear, the meaning of words that you read, the meaning of objects that you see in movies, all these things that we do all naturally, but are extremely complicated. And, and you know, the highest level of cognition um, is what um, Jack did and, and really figure out how it happens uh, in the brain. Not surprisingly, this, this work has been uh, published in, in multiple articles in the best journals, science and, and nature. Uh, he has received many prizes and honors. I'm not going to read them to you, but uh, you know the most notable are um, Time Magazine's 50 Best Inventions uh, in 2011 for his brain decoding algorithm. Uh, and more recently, he has been elected as the chair of the IEEE Brain Technical Community. And in his talk today, I think, you know, I, I mentioned the first phase was this kind of analysis phase, how we decompose images. The second phase, just to, to kind of add words to it was the synthesis phase, how we synthesize these things to extract meaning. And, and I think he's gonna tell us more about this next super exciting, now that you know, we understand somewhat what the brain does, uh, can we use this technology that he's uh, advanced and developed um, in medical applications? And I'm very much looking forward to um, this next chapter in your work, Jack, and, uh, and welcome Professor Gallant. Well, thank you, Frederick, for that incredibly nice uh, um, introduction. And thank you uh, for everybody else who showed up uh, last December or December of 2020 uh, for an aborted effort to give this talk and who showed up again. I appreciate your uh, faith in me. 
and hopefully things will work better this time. Um, this talk, as Frederick mentioned, is going to have a medical slant, and it's really a, a kind of a forward-looking talk, um, and it's really a talk that's intended to, to scratch an itch of mine. Um, we can do amazing things in human brain imaging, just amazing, remarkable things that no one would have ever thought we could do, we would be able to do uh, 25 years ago when human brain imaging started. Uh, and almost none of that, virtually zero percent, is has transitioned to the clinic yet. So uh, we have this remarkable technology that is available to us. It's not used for diagnosis or prognosis or treatment or to evaluate treatments of mental disorders. And I personally find this very frustrating because I think we're leaving uh, a, a lot of potential help for individuals on the table. Um, I think we could do a lot more than we're doing. So today I'm going to talk to you kind of about where the field is and where it could be and what the challenges are in moving from basic science, which is where I built my career, into uh, applications. And I'm going to make myself uh, small here so that, um, uh, so that you can see the slides. All right, so... Uh, if we think of any kind of mental disorder, um, dementia, um, a developmental disorder like autism, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, um, most mental disorders that aren't just say a stroke affecting the motor system, these are fundamentally disorders of thought. They, they, they disorganize or, or impair people's ability to think in a neurotypical fashion. And they therefore impact the quality of life of individuals, um, uh, uh, especially if they have to like navigate in a real world that's full of uh, people who think differently. So, you know, this is not a profound insight or particularly new. Um, obviously, for thousands of years, it's been known that certain individuals uh, acted and thought and behaved differently than other individuals. And, um, you know, the last certainly 500 years, we've known that this probably had something to do with some sort of brain disorder. Uh, and because of the need to try to understand these diseases uh, from the point of view of brain disorders, there's been a lot of work to try to develop brain uh, imaging methods that would allow us to discover um, not how people are thinking, not just by looking at their behavior, but by actually measuring their brain. And of course, some of these were uh, kind of aborted efforts. You are all familiar with uh, phrenology, uh, a uh, widely discredited and, and legitimately so, <laughs> legitimately discredited uh, method of brain imaging that proposed that one could study uh, the location of different mental functions by analyzing the bumps on uh, individuals' heads. Strangely, the phrenologists had a good idea that they, they had based on a lot of uh, older literature, really just uh, natural experiments where people had suffered brain injuries. The phrenologists had this idea that brain function is localized in some sense. What they didn't have was any appropriate technology for actually, you know, being able to recover the locations of different brain functions and brain networks. And, and that's really what we've been able to do uh, with modern neuroimaging um, since about 1995. Now, um, because we haven't had any method for really easily uh, addressing brain function in the clinic, uh, we've relied on three other sort of pillars 
for, uh, for diagnosis and, and treatment of brain and monitoring treatment of brain disorders. The first is obviously clinical assessment of behavior. And, and obviously clinical assessment of behavior is fundamental. Um, all of these brain disorders, schizophrenia, strokes, uh, dyslexia, all these brain, uh, uh, disease and developmental disorders affect behavior. And if there's absolutely no manifestation of a behavioral problem and the patient themselves is not complaining about any kind of impairment, then you would have no idea that anything was wrong. And, and so nothing would be done. Nothing, no one would even consider doing anything. So obviously clinical assessment of behavior is the, the primary thing that uh, any kind of medical clinician or medical scientist will use to uh, to investigate these kinds of brain disorders and developmental disorders. The second is brain anatomy and physiology. We have MRI scans. Probably a lot of you in the audience have been in an MRI machine and had your brain scanned for one reason or another. Uh, these machines work very well. They're designed for high throughput applications. So uh, you can go to the hospital and get an MRI and the technician will be able to give you a pretty good image of your brain. And it will tell you if, for example, you have, um, say, uh, a tumor in your brain uh, or a venous malformation or something else that might be causing problems. So that's useful. Um, more recently, and, and a growing field in uh, medical diagnosis of brain disorders is molecular assays. And people have worked very hard on this uh, because there are there's some indication that certain kinds of brain disorders have either a molecular cause or a molecular correlate that goes along with it. And the most notable of these is Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's it seems to be at least partly a disease of protein folding in the brain. And those misfolded proteins can be uh, assayed using uh, appropriate uh, methods. And the, the diagnostic uh, power of the molecular assay so far isn't very strong. It's not as, as strong as one would like, but it gets better all the time. But you notice there's a fourth pillar here, functional brain mapping. Right? That's, that's a missing pillar. Um, and you might say, well, why do we really need functional brain maps? After all, we have a clinical assessment of behavior. If, if uh, somebody is having delusions and they're hearing voices, uh, yeah, sure, you could do a, a functional brain scan, but you could also just ask them, are, are you hearing voices? Or you might, they might just tell you I'm hearing voices that aren't there and I think they're real and, and it's, it's disconcerting to me. So why do we really need brain mapping? There's a simple reason. And I, I like to describe this as uh, as brain metamers. The brain is a big place. There are 80 billion neurons. All of these neurons are connected together in very, very dense networks. Uh, there are hundreds of different brain areas. Uh, each area has a 50% connect, uh, uh, probability of being connected to another brain area. Information percolates around in the brain in these very complicated dynamical patterns. And then it emerges in behavior. But behavior is a very low dimensional signal relative to brain activity. So you can have many, many different brain states that all lead to the same observed behavior. And the problem is if you only have behavior to try to, uh, to, try to categorize people, you're going to categorize people with very different brain disorders as in the same bin. And that is going to uh, be a relatively weak way to diagnose people and a very relatively weak way to develop treatments uh, because it's going to try to do a diagnosis or treatment that's overly broad. It would be much better to be able to target, 
to target individual patterns of brain activity and brain function to individual behaviors in an individual subject level. And that's really lacking currently. So that's my motivation for, for all of this and why I'm interested in it. Now I just want to show you a little movie that kind of illustrates the power of modern fMRI. Uh, this is a brain. Obviously, the brain is very inconveniently folded up inside your head, but we can computationally inflate it, kind of like something to the size of a beach ball, and then we can flatten it out. And if we did this to your brain, we would end up with something about the size of a large pizza. Uh, now, on the pattern of the on the, the unfolded brain here, we can um, draw functional brain activity. Red here means more brain activity relative to the mean, and uh, blue is less than the average brain activity. Um, just to orient you on this particular brain map, um, the middle of the, the slide is uh, the visual system. Um, the far left and far right are prefrontal cortex. This strip here, kind of at the top in the middle, is the motor strip. And uh, down here in the middle, um, at the bottom, kind of in the middle, is the auditory system. Uh, now, in this demonstration, we have somebody simply watching a movie. There's, there's music playing in this movie, but it's not important for, for our discussion, so I turned it off. Um, you notice this movie just cycles through a bunch of short cut scenes. There may be some thematic relationship between them. It's not really completely obvious. Uh, and the subject is asked to simply watch the movies. And while they do that, we record their brain activity. And the patterns of brain activity are shown on the bottom. And what I hope you uh, will be able to see is that the patterns of brain activity are very, very complicated and dynamic. They change very rapidly and they depend in some complicated, pretty inscrutable way on the scene that is being shown. Uh, certain scenes like this evoke a lot of brain activity in certain regions of the brain. Other scenes that you saw earlier evoked very, very little brain activity. So fundamentally, the problem of brain mapping is a problem of correlating stuff that happened in the movie, the things that you saw or the things that uh, you thought about. Um, for example, maybe you just started a new relationship and this scene of kissing uh, gives you fond memories and makes you feel good. So you have brain activity that's kind of indirectly related to what's going on on the screen. We want to find relationships between the uh, explicit and implicit sort of cues and signals in the stimulus and the task and the brain activity that we measure. The problem is the brain activity, as I said before, is complicated. We're measuring about 100,000 points on the surface of the cortex here. And uh, the relationship between the brain and what's going on is, is poorly understood at best. Okay. So um, rather than take you through all the different kinds of projects we have in the lab, I thought today, given that we're interested in uh, disorders of mental function, and uh, those are fundamentally disorders of thought, I thought I would talk about one line of research that goes back about uh, 10 or 12 years in my lab that tries to understand uh, how thought is represented. Basically, how is conceptual knowledge represented in the brain? Uh, how do you extract the meaning of the world and impute meaning to events in the world and uh, use that conceptual knowledge in the service of plans and goals to facilitate behavior? I'm not the first person who has uh, sought to look into this issue. There's a, a long line of psychologists who have tried to understand how we uh, learn and then deploy and use conceptual knowledge. Um, and I would say from a neuroscience point of view, 
um, up to maybe 2010, uh, we could fruitfully divide this problem into four kinds of large domains of, of subproblems, uh, or, or, or let's say four uh, kinds of cognitive functions that we, that we thought based on prior psychology and neuroscience uh, data probably underlied our use of conceptual knowledge. Um, first, there's something called an amodal conceptual network and, or an amodal semantic network. And this is a, a network of brain areas that represents uh, knowledge, uh, concrete knowledge about the world, about what's happening now, about what might happen in the future, in a form that's not tightly tied to the senses. Um, there's also modal conceptual networks. For example, in the visual system, which is uh, in humans and other primates located at the back of the head, um, in the visual system has uh, several dozens of different brain areas that represent different visual concepts like people or animals or places and so on. So there's modal conceptual networks that are tied to the senses. There's an amodal conceptual network that seems to be divorced from the senses. Uh, then of course, there is a long-term memory access because you know if you see an image of your wife but you don't remember it's your wife, then uh, you know there's going to be problems, right? You have to index, you have to constantly index incoming sensory information into your previous experience and long-term memory. So in order to label the world and understand uh, what people are doing and what things are out there, you need to have access to long-term memory. And that's, that's a, a, fourth com a third component. And the final component is executive function. And executive function is important uh, really because when you are behaving in the world, you have, you're always resource limited. This is something psychologists have known for hundreds of years. You, you don't have enough resources to process all the possible information you could process. You have to focus on something. So you have uh, systems of working memory and attention that are basically everywhere in the entire brain. And they're constantly modulating the use of information in the service of immediate plans and goals so that you can, you can get your work done, whatever, you, whatever you're trying to do. So these four kinds of domains have been studied using different varieties of uh, methods. And I'm gonna show you uh, neuroimaging uh, work on, on three of the four of these. So the first thing I'm gonna tell you about briefly is um, a, the amodal semantic network. Um, we can map this network. Uh, I won't go into the details, but basically you can map this network using stories. If you have someone listen to stories, say from the Moth Radio Hour, which is just a, a stand-up storytelling festival, um, we can have people listen to these stories while they're in the MRI machine. And then we can essentially correlate semantic concepts that appeared in the stories with different paths of brain activity using uh, modern methods of data science and machine learning that are not at all pop, uh, important for today's talk. And if you do this, you can create a functional map of the sort shown here. Now, um, we have a left hemisphere on the left here and a right hemisphere on the right and the lateral and medial views of the brain at the bottom. Uh, and at each point in the brain, you notice we've assigned it a color. And uh, the color that we've assigned at each point in the brain indicates the kind of semantic information that is represented uh, by activity at that point in the brain. So it turns out that all of the red spots that you see here are all locations where uh, you process information, social information, uh, mother's information about your mother or somebody's father or a divorce or a death and so on. Um, green 
Areas are locations where you uh, represent visual information about the world, texture and color and size and shape. Um, purple areas are areas where you uh, represent mental concepts like justice and uh, truth and love and beauty, things that don't have a, a physical instantiation in the world, but uh, you can conceptualize them and uh, they often come up in stories. So there are actually 2,000 different semantic concepts mapped on this map. I'm just showing you a, a very low dimensional projection of these here. But what you can see right away is that these maps are very complicated. And in fact, we have an online brain viewer that you can play with. It's on my uh, lab website. I should mention my lab website. It's a bit out of date, but this brain viewer is still up there. And we can click on a piece of the brain and we can find out what concepts uh, are represented at that location as shown down here on the right. So you notice now I'm clicking on several locations in the brain that are red and all of the concepts that are represented here are uh, concepts related to families and family relationships, married, um, um, divorced, mother, father, husband, brother, and so on. And there are a lot of these uh, um, red locations, as you might expect, given that uh, social information is very, very important for human behavior. But there are other networks uh, that we recover in this experiment that have to do with other kinds of quantities. For example, uh, there are a series of dark green patches that you will uh, find if you use the brain viewer um, that all represent uh, money, uh, dates, uh, time, and weights, uh, units of measure. All those kinds of uh, quantity kinds of concepts are represented in a network of uh, green spots that are all um, part of this uh, numbers network. And there are many, many networks in the brain and you could actually play with this brain viewer forever. Uh, it, it won't run in your phone, so don't try to do that, but it will run on any modern computer. All right, so uh, after playing this game and mapping thousands of semantic concepts, uh, we came up with two very general principles. Uh, this, um, and they're shown in this map here. This is uh, a map for the concept of dog, uh, divorced from all other concepts. And red locations are locations in the brain where dogs are represented. And um, in other words, if a dog comes up in a story or you see a dog, uh, these red areas will become activated. And blue is all the locations that uh, are indifferent to dogs. And what you notice is that dogs are represented in many different locations in the brain. In fact, for every concept you can come up with, dogs, garages, cars, the president, there will be multiple locations in the brain that become activated when that concept comes up in this amodal semantic network. And at each location in the brain, uh, in the, if it's part of the amodal semantic network, represents a, a family of related concepts. Um, I should mention going back that the interesting thing about this from the point of view of like you just being a conscious being is you are not at all aware of this. Nobody is aware of this. If you think of a dog, it's just a dog. It, it emerges into consciousness, some sort of unitary concept. Um, you can focus down on individual piece of the dog, but it, it, you know, it's easy to think of dogs and the family of dogs and all the related information about dogs as kind of a, a whole. But in the brain, it's not represented that way at all. It's represented as this uh, fragmented kind of uh, map of activity. And frankly, nobody knows how consciousness binds all of this together. All right, now I also mentioned to you that there's a, there are modal networks that 
special that are specialized for representing sensory information. And uh, the difference between the amodal network and the modal network is shown here on this map. Um, blue regions here are the regions that represent amodal semantic information. In other words, they're not, it's not tightly tied to the sense. And red regions are regions that represent visual semantic information. In other words, they will represent the uh, semantic category, the concept, but it has to be presented visually. So a dog, so these areas would respond if, if they were dog selective to a picture of a dog or a movie of a dog, but they wouldn't represent, they, they wouldn't respond to the word dog or to the sound of a dog. And you can see that the modal networks are separate from the amodal networks. And in fact, if you think about normal daily experience, well, you know, I'm walking through the world, I see a dog, it goes into my visual system, somehow that must get transmitted to my amodal semantic system, where I will be able to access more than merely visual information about the dog that allow me to integrate, to have this more integrated concept of the dog. And by an, an amazing piece of research by uh, Alex Huth and Sarah Popham in my lab, uh, they discovered that um, the, there are a large set of parallel semantically selective channels that shunt information from the sensory systems, in this case, vision, into this amodal sense-free system. So this black line here on these maps is the boundary of occipital cortex. Occipital cortex is the visual lobe and it's at the back of the head. And at the anterior border of the visual lobe are a bunch of semantically selective little patches of cortex that all represent different concepts, dogs and people and planes and guns and everything. And immediately anterior, and, and um, so, these patches will be activated if there's a visual pattern and it's the right semantic category. Immediately in front of this black line is the amodal semantic network. And this network um, represents information, not only if it's uh, from a picture, but it could also represent information if it was spoken or you heard a story about it, or you uh, um, uh, heard a dog bark. And interestingly, the semantic category of the amodal network immediately anterior to the visual modal network, it matches precisely along this border. So uh, it looks like basically when you have a higher order visual area that represents, um, say, a face, it feeds into immediately a very nearby amodal semantic area that represents kind of general knowledge about faces divorced from uh, purely the visual experience of a face. Um, I mentioned executive function. Uh, these networks have to be dynamic because you don't have enough brain to represent all things at all times. If you go home and your cat Fluffy is missing, your number one job is to find Fluffy. And your brain does what it can to become a giant Fluffy detector. Where is Fluffy? Where is Fluffy? I start looking around the world for my cat Fluffy. I start thinking, where does Fluffy hang out? Could she be up on top of the, the curtain where she climbs sometimes? Could she have gotten out a window? I start running all these plans and schemes. I do my visual search procedure as efficiently as I can. I call out. My entire brain becomes optimized for this giant fluffy detection task. And when that happens, basically all of the representations of information in your brain in this amodal network shift as much as they can to represent concepts related to the cat detection task, the current task. And we can see this by having people watch movies. And in one condition of the movie, we have them search for humans. And every time they see a human, we have them report they saw a human. And another condition, we, see, we uh, have them uh, report when they see a vehicle. 
And um, in this particular color map, I'm only mapping two semantic concepts, red is humans and green is vehicles. And you can see that when they're searching for humans, the brain becomes largely oriented towards humans. And when they're searching for toward vehicles, uh, the brain becomes largely oriented toward vehicles. This is actually uh, called um, a tuning shift uh, in, in our literature. There's another name for it, another part of the neuroscience literature called um, uh, mixed selectivity. But what ends up happening is essentially the way the brain represents information is modified according to the current task. Um, this probably we think has something very deep to do with learning. Uh, after all, uh, if you keep doing a task over and over and over again, then what will happen is you will become more efficient at making these uh, network changes and they will move from being short-term plastic changes to being long-term changes in long-term memory. Now there was a, so I, I told you about the amodal system, the modal system, I told you a little bit about executive function. There's one thing I haven't told you about yet, which is long-term memory. Um, long-term memory and its, and its intersection with the amodal conceptual network is interesting because we have known for decades that there is one particular brain disorder that has an enormous effect on people's ability to link current semantic concepts and experience with long-term memory. And that brain disorder is called ATL dementia, anterior temporal lobe dementia. Uh, the temporal lobes are uh, the, the parts of the brain that kind of stick out down here below your nose. And here in these brain maps, we're not looking at the side of the brain as we've been looking at. We're looking at the bottom of the brain. I might be able to go back here, a few slides. So the temporal lobe would be this part of the brain here, right? And so um, I'm looking up at the bottom of the brain here. And so this is one temporal lobe and this is another temporal lobe. And the anterior temporal lobes are uh, this part here I'm outlining with my mouse. They're kind of in the middle of, of uh, this, the brain. And you can see that the anterior temporal lobes here, this is a normal subject. The anterior temporal lobes are very dark. Uh, on this map, we're just plotting brain activity elicited in the MRI machine uh, when we record. And what you can see is some parts of the brain, like the frontal lobes here, show a lot of brain activity. And some parts of the brain, like the anterior temporal lobes, show very little brain activity. This is not a property of the brain. This is a limitation of our measurement device. MRI is not a perfect measurement device. Uh, it has a lot of um, problems that, uh, of various sorts that all have to be compensated for in order to get good imaging. And one of the problems that MRI has is when you try to measure a piece of brain that is very near, say, an air sac, um, your signal disappears. So it's very hard to measure the brain directly over, say, the sinuses, and it's very hard to measure the brain near the ear canals. And so uh, normal brain imaging does not measure the anterior temporal lobes. Uh, and um, as a consequence, there's almost no brain imaging data on the anterior temporal lobes. However, we know from uh, lesion studies from people with anterior temporal lobe dementia that they have very severe problems with long-term memory. People with anterior temporal lobe dementia, they will have problems processing language. They will have problems interpreting visual scenes. They'll be able to walk around the world and not run into walls, uh, but they really won't be able to interact with the world. They won't be able to plan. They won't be able to achieve goals. Sometimes they uh, uh, develop some uh, upset. Uh, obsessive disorders involving one particular object. 
or one particular act activity. It's a very, very debilitating uh, progressive disease. And um, it clearly indicates that the anterior temporal lobes provide some sort of link uh, between long-term memory and this amodal semantic network, right? The amodal, the amodal conceptual semantic network is continuously receiving information from the senses, but the ATL is a, a hub that is responsible for linking that ongoing represent uh, ongoing sens sensory information and amodal information into long-term memory. So we can't really see the ATLs in neuroimaging. And as a consequence, nobody has really done neuroimaging in the ATL yet uh, of, of really any use. I mean, there have been some studies that just haven't told us all that much. And almost all the information we have about uh, memory, the ATL, and the link between long-term memory and the conceptual network uh, comes from brain lesion patients. So one effort in my lab has been to try to fix this. And uh, we run a full service lab. You know, we do a lot of MRI physics and MRI development. Uh, we write our own, all of our own software and all of our own algorithms. We're a kind of a soup to nuts lab. Uh, so when we encountered this problem, we just decided to develop a new pulse sequence that would improve our signals that we can acquire in the ATL. So we spent a year or two, uh, one of my postdocs, Matteo uh, Visconti, along with a former graduate student of mine who is now a professor at UCSF uh, on VU, uh, they developed a new pulse sequence that hugely uh, rescues the ATL. And we're now beginning to use, uh, as you can see in the middle slide here. So um, we're now beginning to use this uh, pulse sequence to scan neurotypicals, to try to map the anterior temporal lobe in neurotypicals. And we have a collaboration with uh, groups at uh, UCSF that study anterior temporal lobe dementia to uh, apply this method to patients as well. All right. Now, I, everything I told you about up to now was about conceptual knowledge. I just want to let you know that, you know, we do a lot of fun stuff in the lab. It's not all about conceptual knowledge. In fact, this method can be used to study absolutely anything that you can think about in the brain, including fairly complicated behaviors. So in work that's been ongoing for about the past five years, uh, that was um, initiated by a graduate student of mine, Tian Zhao Zhang, who's now a postdoc of mine. Um, we have been studying navigation behavior. And to do this, we built a large virtual world, a couple miles on a side. It contains hundreds of different buildings and landmarks. Uh, people spend about 10 hours learning to drive around in this town, and they learn where all the landmarks are and where all the streets are. And then we have them do an Uber, Uber excuse me, an Uber driver task, a taxi driver task in the MRI machine. So um, obviously when you're doing this kind of task, you're driving around in the city, uh, you have to manipulate the controls, the foot pedals, you have to manipulate the steering wheel, you have to be careful of your speed. You have to constantly monitor the other traffic, the other cars. Uh, there are pedestrians in this world, though they sometimes wander out in the street, you have to avoid hitting them and you have to get to your destination. So there's a, a lot going on. There are multiple brain networks that are all involved in doing this navigation task and we can map them all in this one single experiment. Um, in fact, this is a summary slide of 33 different kinds of information, navigation-related information that we can recover from this one experiment uh, in the brain of an individual observer. Okay, so now in closing, I just want to return to the issue we had at the very, uh, we discussed at the very beginning, which is uh, this looks great, at least in my view, it looks great. When can we apply it to the clinic? And as I said before, um, MRI is not used for clinical applications except for pre-surgical mapping. Uh, if you're going to do brain surgery on someone, you want to be sure to avoid 
Essentially, you want to avoid removing any part of the brain that the person will notice is missing. So they map motor areas, they map areas involved in speech and in vision and hearing to make sure that they minimize any resection of those brain tissues. But other than that, um, MRI is not used in the clinic at all. And one of the reasons is uh, this is a typical clinical MRI image. Um, that was just published, as you can see, a few years ago in 2017. And uh, if this is the kind of data that we're collecting in the clinic, then it's understandable why people wouldn't think that this is a particularly useful method for them. So one of the problems, there, there are two fundamental problems in the clinic. Uh, the first is most neuroscience and most clinical studies as well uh, that uh, look at functional brain maps, they look at the group maps. They don't look at individual brains. So uh, imagine that I uh, was interested in uh, seeing, I, I was interested in what presidents look like. And instead of looking at the individual presidents and the variety of the presidents, I just averaged them all together. And yeah, okay, I, I get an average president. It looks kind of presidential, but it obviously doesn't look like any individual president. And if I tried to, if I tried to like guess if someone was a president by looking at this image, that would probably not work very well. So, you know, whenever we aggregate data across a group and throw away individual data, we're always going to have problems. And one of the things we need to do to move this method into the clinic is to get away from the group-based studies that MRI has relied on for so long and do everything on an individual subject basis. Now, everything in my lab, we do on an individual subject basis. So uh, we can use our technology to get around this problem. This just shows you how bad the problem is. This is four brain maps. These are the amortal semantic network mapped with stories from four individuals. You can see that the anatomical structure of the brain differs for these four individuals, but also the functional maps differ a lot. They're not completely different. You notice everyone has two red spots uh, in the sort of uh, center middle of the brain. Um, and uh, everyone has maybe a green and a yellow and a blue, sorry, a blue, yellow, blue stripe in the prefrontal cortex here, right? Uh, but, but they look a lot different. In fact, about 70% of the functional data reflects individual differences, and only about a third of it reflects uh, the group model. So if you try to do brain mapping on a patient who's coming into the hospital, only using a group-based model, you're going to be missing two-thirds of the data in that person's brain. And that obviously is not something we want to tolerate if we're using this kind of uh, method to do uh, diagnosis and prognosis and monitoring of treatment. So we would like to do individual brain mapping, both for medical diagnosis, for monitoring mental health, and also to build brain machine interfaces for people uh, who have communication disorders. And um, to do that, we have to solve not only the individual brain problem, which I told you about already at length in this talk, but we need to solve a second fundamental problem of the clinic, which is time. If I want to make a really great brain map from one of my uh, graduate students, say, I can ask them to go in the MRI machine repeatedly uh, for a total of maybe five or six hours over several weeks. I can get as much data as I want from them and um, we can make as good a map as can possibly be made. In the clinic, everything is aliquoted in 20 minute increments. Uh, you have to be able to solve the problem in 20 minutes. And if you can't do it in 20 minutes, it's probably not gonna get done. So we need to create brain maps kind of of the quality that you saw earlier, but in a 20 minute uh, span. And, and we've been working very hard on doing that. And the magic sauce there is machine learning. Um, 
essentially what we do is we get brain maps from a large number of individuals and we create a machine learning algorithm that understands uh, the variability in brain maps across individuals. Then when we get a new person, um, we can take a very small number of data points from that person and the algorithm will essentially find the person in the database whose brain is most similar to the new subject's brain, the patient's brain. And we use that as a prior to infer the missing data that we can't collect because we only have 20 minutes. And as you can see from the semantic map at the top and the bottom here, uh, this method actually works uh, amazingly well. This uses a machine learning tool called a variational autoencoder, but that's not important for today's talk. I just want to let you know that this does not seem to be a lost cause. It seems like it should be possible to, uh, to basically improve um, a small amount of clinical data in order to make inferences about data that we didn't actually collect. Right. The last thing I'll mention is uh, resolution. Currently in, in, a, in the clinic, the MRI scanner is typically one Tesla. Uh, the scanner we have here at Berkeley is a three Tesla scanner. Um, that's just a measure of magnetic, uh, uh, magnetic strength. Um, our scanner we have here at Berkeley can measure uh, a cube of brain tissue about two by two by two millimeters on the side. Now the problem is that's kind of large for uh, brain tissue. The brain is actually organized uh, into these little things called columns that are about 500 microns across. So we would like to reduce the size of the resolution, the size of the voxels, the volumetric pixels we're recording to something on the order of uh, 500 microns. And over the past uh, three or four years, UC Berkeley has made a substantial uh, investment, and I do mean substantial, in a new project that is funded even more substantially by the National Institutes of Health that's being directed by Dr. David Feinberg here at Berkeley to create the next generation fMRI scanner. And when this scanner uh, is completed, hopefully this summer, uh, this will uh, is projected to achieve a resolution of about 400 microns, which will allow us to hone in and look at the individual columnar structure of the brain. And this will provide a really great way for us to bridge between animal studies, which are at the local circuit level, and human studies, which have always been at the whole brain area level. So we're very, very excited about this next-gen scanner. Uh, this scanner, I should mention, will probably never pay for itself because it's always going to be kind of an uh, a MRI physics experiment, and only the most dedicated people are going to use it. Uh, but it's going to be uh, great for science. All right, uh, that's about it for my talk. Um, thank you for paying attention. I hope I didn't drone on too long. I'd just like to thank all my lab members, uh, the government agencies, uh, the military agencies, private industry, and the Wild Neural Hub that have supported this uh, research. And I do want to beg you, if you're in, at all interested in advancing both basic human cognitive neuroscience and in bridging from basic cognitive neuroscience to the clinic so that we can improve outcomes for people with developmental and uh, disease-based mental um, problems, then please consider supporting either the UCB Brain Imaging Center or uh, the UCB Department of Psychology. Thanks very much for your time.
Thank you, Professor Gallant, for that outstanding presentation. I can hear um, the audience clapping. Thank you so much for your attention, uh, everyone. Uh, Jack, we have some questions in the chat I think you have access to. If I could um, ask you to, to dive into what looks interesting, but could you, before doing that, if I could um, offer the first one, could you say just a little bit more um, about uh, what's needed to advance your work. Um, we'll be sharing resources with our attendees, links and information. Uh, what specifically is needed to push your work into the next level? Well, I think uh, in, in, in particular, in terms of this clinical bridge to the clinic, um, you know, that we really have a, a chicken and egg problem here. Um, clinical medicine is uh, under very, very severe time pressure. And, and uh, clinical uh, uh, people in the clinic don't generally want to change their workflow and uh, they don't want to introduce any kind of new methods if, they, if there's not overwhelming reason to do so. Uh, if it's a method that's an evolution of something they understand, then that's fine. But if it's, if it's something new, that's uh, much more fraught. So it's, it actually turns out to be kind of tricky to try to uh, do the spade work we need to do in order to be able to move this into the clinic. Now, I do have collaborations with people at UCSF, uh, Kate Rankin and uh, um, Marina uh, Gorno-Tempini on ATL dementia. We have a new grant that we just got, a pilot grant to work on dyslexia along with the UCSF Dyslexia Center. Um, but none of those grants that are, those grants are all patient focused. And if you notice at the very end of the talk, I talked about how we have to use machine learning to leverage the patient data in order to basically fill in the inevitably missing parts from the patient data. And that's going to require collecting data from a large number of neurotypical subjects. So we need to be able to support doing individual differences studies at scale where we have, we're looking at hundreds of individuals in these very high dimensional uh, complicated mapping studies. And that's really, from my point of view, the, the biggest gap uh, that we, we can't really plug with any sort of existing NIH uh, funding tool right now. Um, they're happy to pay for clinical things that involve patients. They're happy to pay for small scale basic neuroscience research, but the, this kind of bridge between the two, that's, that's where things are kind of lacking. Thank you. Thank you for uh, clarifying um, that. Would you like me to, uh, Christian, would you like me to go through the slides that people submitted before or the, or the, the questions that people submitted before the new questions? I can do either one. Yeah. I think if you know, you have some that were submitted in, in advance that, that you'd like to address, let's start there. Well, th there's only a few questions uh, that are live. So yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, great. Um, okay. Somebody asked, how does dyslexia show up in uh, functional brain maps? And I just mentioned, actually, we just received a grant to do this. Uh, this is, I think, a grant from, uh, it's an internal grant from UCSF and Berkeley. It might be the Wild Neuro Hub. It might be, a, no, I think it's from the Schwab Center on dyslexia. Um, and uh, we are going to start uh, looking at this issue. We've looked at reading ability in neurotypicals, and we have a lot of information about how uh, word forms are, are created out of the multiple steps of visual processing that happen in early vision. Um, we, we know how that works in the, in the neurotypical brain. We don't have any idea how this works in dyslexics because no one has ever used this high resolution, high dimensional uh, functional mapping method 
in dyslexics. Um, so all the in functional MRI data on dyslexics just says, you know, what part of the brain is activated in dyslexics and is it activated more or less than in neurotypicals? And that's not informative uh, as to what is really happening in, this, in the dyslexic brain. Uh, somebody asked, can this be, technology be used in the diagnosis and treatment of dementia? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that is also my hope. Um, if you notice at the end of the talk, I talked about the driving experiment. There's a reason that we started working on navigation. Um, it turns out that it's a common clinical report that when people first uh, start feeling the effects of dementia, uh, one of the first problems they have is they lose the ability to navigate around their town, even, even if they've lived there for years and know it well. They, they basically can't find their way anymore. So we think that perhaps navigation is a very sensitive biomarker for um, early onset of uh, dementia, such as Alzheimer's. And uh, we are um, developing this navigation method, uh, again, in neurotypicals, So because we have to find out how the, the, we have to, for all of these, you know, brain mapping uh, uh, problems, we have to find out how the neurotypical brain does it before we can understand how a, a, a broken, a diseased or damaged brain does it, right? So we're doing this in neurotypicals now. Um, getting over the hump to doing this in dementia patients is probably not practical right now because as I mentioned, it takes about 10 hours for people to learn the town. But what we're trying to do is find the funding and collaborators to build a virtual Berkeley or a virtual San Francisco online so that we can, or, or uh, in, in the computer, uh, in VR, so that we can have people navigate in an environment that they already know. And if we can, once we have a Berkeley or San Francisco um, virtual reality environment, then we can put um, people who are at risk for dementia in the MRI machine and start tracking their, uh, their brain networks for this and other tasks. What, if anything, does this teach us about plasticity after rehabilitation? Well, as I mentioned, attention is a, has a huge effect on uh, plasticity on a very short time scale. If you attend to what I'm uh, saying, then as uh, my speech is evolving, your attention is being directed to different concepts. And uh, those concepts are represented preferentially in brain networks at the cost of representing other irrelevant information. And this happens all the time and online. This is a, a fundamental a fundamental uh, feature of mammalian brains. And it's something that's completely missing from machine learning because in, in machine learning today, usually what happens is you train your machine and you train your AI and then you deploy it. And it, it never, it doesn't learn after that. Humans learn all the time, constantly at all timescales. And attention induced plasticity of brain representations is just the shortest time scale at which you see plasticity. Uh, but we can certainly see uh, plastic changes in brain networks over time using these functional mapping methods. In work not done in my lab, but nice work done in other labs, they've uh, mapped brains while people learned musical instruments. So the first study of this learned, uh, did brain mapping while somebody learned to play the piano, and they found out that the uh, representation of the hands increased over months as people learned to play the piano. The question from that was, well, perhaps this doesn't have to do with playing the piano. Maybe it just has to do with physical activity. So someone, another group went and did a study of uh, the violin, which is a very asymmetric uh, instrument because one uh, hand is fretting and one hand is bowing. 
And in that case, you also saw that as people learn to play the violin, their hand representations uh, enlarged, but they enlarged very, very differently in the two hemispheres, depending on whether your task was to, whether the hemisphere's task was to bow or fret. So, so this is uh, definitely something that could be deployed to rehabilitation. It has never been used in that way so far. Could brain imaging be used to show changes in brain networks due to change of diet? Uh, certainly, there's only one caveat I want to point out um, because I'm uh, tend to be a brutally honest person. You know, fMRI is not a perfect method. It has problems. One of the problems is it's not measuring neurons directly. It actually measures metabolism. So neurons are little chemical engines. A neuron takes in sugar and it takes in oxygen and it burns the sugar and it creates a fuel that it uses to power its little cellular machinery. And um, in MRI, we're actually measuring that change in oxygen level that has to do with neural metabolism. So if you were going to look at diet and fMRI, you would have to tease out the various contributions of diet to the various components of the fMRI signal, some of which are directly related to the brain and some of which might not be directly related to brain function. So it would just be a caveat. It could be done. Uh, it would just have to be done very carefully. Should functional brain scans be a routine part of preventative care? Um, functional brain scans are expensive. So I think at this time, no. Um, we here at UC Berkeley pay $600 an hour to uh, do our brain scan. I think if you go to a hospital um, that has a uh, much greater overhead and doctors who drive Ferraris, then you will pay at least $1,000 an hour for your brain scan. Uh, it's not cheap. So should it be functional? Should it be used as part of preventative care? Um, probably not yet, but you know the costs of brain scanning are going down continuously. And I think that's, that is probably something we should shoot for. How does the next-gen scanner relate to the work being done at the Allen Brain Institute? So for those of you who are not familiar with the Allen Brain Institute, Paul Allen, a uh, billionaire who just died very recently, but was a former, um, one of the founders of Microsoft, um, founded, before he died, the Allen Brains Institute in Seattle. And the Allen Brain Institute has tried to do neuroscience at scale, big neuroscience, big projects. Instead of cutting up one mouse brain and looking at it under electro, uh, uh, an electron microscope, the Allen Institute will cut up 10,000 mouse brains and look at them under electron microscopes, right? That's the scale that they work at. Um, so the Allen Brain Institute has been doing a lot of great work. Almost all of that is either in animals or in post-mortem human tissue. As far as I know, the Allen Institute has no functional uh, MRI component at all that they are that they're working on. And um, if they did, uh, they would probably have to talk to me because um, our MRI methods at Berkeley are uh, at least as good or better than any other uh, group in the world. And uh, we can map more information more quickly here than anywhere else. And so um, I, pro I would probably know about it if they were doing it. Someone asked, what is the mechanism and substrate of consciousness? And uh, I implied the answer to this earlier in my talk. I have no idea. No one has any idea. Consciousness is a big mystery. Um, we have looked the best studies, in my opinion, on consciousness have used anesthesia to look at consciousness, where they've titrated up people's level of anesthesia and measured brain activity as they've entered into consciousness and then become unconscious and entered into consciousness and become unconscious. Those are great experiments, but they really haven't told us what consciousness is when the brain is kind of working more in a cohesive network 
uh, where the, the areas are communicating well with each other, then you tend to be conscious. And that tends to happen when you're not under anesthesia. When you go under anesthesia, the brain doesn't work so well. Neurons don't fire so much. The different parts of the brain become decoupled from one another. It doesn't seem to work as, in a, as good of a network and you become unconscious. But that's, that's not a very deep observation. It's just an observation. What is the intersection between this research and studies of psychedelics? I, I wanted to get to this question because uh, some of you may have heard, and if you haven't, you should check into it, that Berkeley just started a new center for psychedelic studies. And several members of the psychology department are involved in that center. Um, it is uh, going to try to use basic psychology and neuroscience research, uh, both in humans and in animal models, to try to better understand uh, the molecular and, and systems neuroscience effects of psychedelics and how they alter our thought. Um, so there are plans to do MRI experiments in the psychedelic center, uh, at, at, along with the psychedelic center. Um, I have plans to do that myself. Um, I am not optimistic about how things are going to turn out. And the reason is um, something known as ground truth. If I have you listen to a story, and then um, at the end of the story, I, at, while you're listening to the story, I map your brain. I know what story you heard. I, I control the story. I have ground truth about the story. So I know if I think of the story as like the X variables in this equation, and the brain activity as the Y variables, I know both the X and the Y variables, and I can make an equation that relates them to one another. If I give you a psychedelic drug, and you take a trip, I have no idea what you're experiencing. I have no ground truth. You might tell me some story about what you're experiencing, but of course that's a pale shadow of what you really experience under psychedelics. So, so my X variables are missing. They're, 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 they're just not really measurable very well. All I have is my Y variables. And if that's just a really hard way to do science. And, um, and you know, every science that ends up finding itself in that situation is it's not as successful as when you control sort of both ends of, of the system, the things you put into the system you're measuring and the measurements themselves. You want to control both ends. Could this technology be used to improve cognitive function, e.g. memory? Yes. In the same way that uh, training and um, uh, uh, could, might improve rehabilitation, it might also improve memory. Um, there are several efforts, a big effort ongoing at UCSF to use brain training both uh, not to improve memory for neurotypicals, but uh, as a way to save off dementia. Um, the early evidence is that it might work, but to be honest, there have not been a lot of really good studies of whether uh, the results of these brain training paradigms uh, generalize outside the scientific setting. So, you know, if I, if I give you a stack of five video games to train your brain and you do those five video games for six months, you will get better at those five video games. There's no doubt about that. But then when you go to the grocery store, will you remember your grocery list any better? Unclear. No, I don't think anybody really knows at this point. Okay. Um, so uh, somebody asked an interesting question, which is what is the sample size of the uh, brains that were measured and what kind range of people were sampled? When I saw the train entering the tunnel in the video, I thought of Benny Hill. So I wondered how many of your sample were thinking of Benny Hill. Probably only me, since I think I'm the only one in my lab old enough to uh, remember who Benny Hill is. Um, we generally use graduate students as subjects. 
and that is bad from the point of view of generalizing to uh, the population because as you guys all know, uh, Berkeley graduate students are very, very smart individuals and uh, they are not uh, your, your typical human. So in that sense, our data thus far are biased, but we use uh, Berkeley graduate students because they are very responsible subjects and um, they know what they're doing and they show up and you know take the experiment seriously. Uh, if we're going to do a indi large individual differences study in the population as a whole, we will have to address uh, this and, and that should and must be done uh, with uh, just standard, you know, neurotypical subjects that are drawn from uh, many walks of life, not just from uh, the graduate pool at Berkeley. Um, oh, some uh, was also asked, what is the sample size of the brains that were measured? Um, in our lab, a, tip, a typical experiment, believe it or not, is maybe five or 10 people. Uh, but we do the full analysis in each one of those five people. So essentially, every brain uh, is an experiment. And if we do five, if we look at five brains, we're doing five replications of the experiment. That's uh, in contrast to the way most, uh, I would say, neuroimaging studies work, where they'll collect data from 20 subjects and then average the subjects together and then look to see if they got a significant result. We always work at the individual subject level. Each subject has to show the effect. Uh, someone else asked, does this new mapping support Sperry's original research on left and right hemisphere distinctions? The left and right hemisphere are different. They're just not as different as uh, might have been thought. Um, now, the, the old Sperry results actually had to do with the visual field. And the, the visual information um, is indeed, at the early stages of vision, confined to one hemisphere versus another. So if you have a split brain uh, patient, um, it will be difficult for information at one, from one hemisphere to get to the, uh, from one visual field to get to the other hemisphere or to get to the same hemisphere actually. Um, but uh, if you look at it, the integrated brain, that's not split brain, um, then uh, there are some differences between the hemispheres, but they're, they're modest. They're not, they're not enormous. Um, most of them seem to have to do with language production, which is very heavily lateralized because the thought is that you only have one mouth. And so you don't want to have two brain systems competing to operate the same mouth. So that becomes lateralized just on one hemisphere. Yeah, um, I'd like to take, uh, can we do one more question and then we'll move to close to stay on schedule or I don't want to interrupt your flow. Well, but I think that's, oh, there's some new questions. Well, it's, it's up to you. Um, I should mention that anybody who wants to, uh, Email me after this talk. You know, I'm I'm Gallon at Berkeley.edu. I'm easy to find. You can email me, and I'm happy to uh, to give you uh, any more information I can. Thank you, Professor Gallant. Uh, so let me once again thank all of you for joining, and thank Professor Gallant. Uh, you will uh, hear from uh, my team as a follow up with um, all kinds of useful information, links to the video for this talk and prior talks. Um, our website where you can learn more about the uh, 100th anniversary of the UC Berkeley Psychology Department, uh, in addition to upcoming activities, events, uh, and ways to be involved. 
will include uh, access to our new psychology newsletter led by the people of the department, graduate student Juliana Chase and many others. It's outstanding. Uh, We'll make sure that you have access to that, as well as ways that you can get involved and get behind the work of the people of UC Berkeley Psychology. I hope this program gave you an idea of how compelling, how interesting, and how important it is. Uh, And we're grateful for your interest and for your time. And for all of you who have given of yourselves, your time, your energy, your resources to support Berkeley Psychology and the university, thank you. Hope you all have a wonderful evening. Look forward to sending out additional information and thank you for joining us. Jack, thanks once again for your time and an outstanding presentation. Thank you for listening. I I hope this was interesting for people. Take it easy. Thank you and have a good night, everyone. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>